Good morning, once again. The children can also be dismissed for children's ministry. And as the children find their way out with the parents, if you're here this morning and have your Bible with you, I'd encourage you to return to the Song of Solomon. And uh, chapter 5 and 6 is where we find ourselves this morning. As a congregation, we've been making our way through the Song of Solomon. We have learned that the Song of Solomon is a song. It's an Old Testament song. It falls in the genre of wisdom literature, and its purpose is to teach us and to give us wisdom. It's a song. It's not about God and Israel. It's not about Jesus and the church. It's a song about love and romance and physical intimacy enjoyed by a young married couple, specifically the shepherd and the Shulamite girl, not Solomon and his thousand. It's the Song of Solomon, but the song is not about him. It's about this young married couple and the physical intimacy and love and romance that's shared between them. So the Song of Solomon, as we've been making our way through it, is a celebrative song about love and romance that God intended for humans, particularly for humans, for people within the realm of the covenant relationship of marriage. And you might be reading the song. We've been reading it all the last three weeks. We've got one more week to go. And you might be thinking, well, how how do we know this is a married couple? Well, five times in the song, the beloved woman is called the bride. And three times in the song, there is this repeated strong covenantal language, which says, my beloved is mine, and I am his. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. This is not just romantic, affectionate language. This is a language of belonging, of possession, of ownership. And then three times in this song, the bride sings to her virgin companions, her unmarried friends, singing what I'm experiencing, what this song is about, this love and romance and intimacy that we're enjoying in the context of marriage, what I'm enjoying, and this is worth waiting for. Don't don't go here before the time is right. So this whole song that we've been spending some time in is a celebration of love and romance and physical intimacy that throughout the canon of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, is praised and celebrated and enjoyed by the married couple. From the opening lines of the song, as we go back to the very beginning, uh, we have focused our attention on chemistry, character, commitment, consummation, and celebration. Those are the five themes that we've been looking at. Chemistry, character, commitment, consummation, and celebration. Chemistry and character, we've covered already in the first two weeks. This morning, we're on the theme of commitment. And we're going to see this morning, as we read chapter 5 and 6, which you read this past week, that not everything in love and romance is easy. In a relationship marked with love and romance and physical intimacy and in the con- context of marriage, there are times of misunderstanding and misread cues and frustration and confusion and distance, and there's difficulty. In the context of two people becoming one in marriage, there are challenges and commitment is needed. It's necessary. So commitment is where we are this morning. Let's look to the Lord in prayer, and we'll continue on in our message this morning. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you once again. We acknowledge that we are welcome into your presence through Jesus Christ. We're grateful that he serves us as our great high priest, and through him we draw near to you, and we find grace and mercy and help in our time of need. So we are so appreciative again of Jesus Christ serving us today and praying for us even now. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us to keep our promises. We pray that you might grow us in the humble character of Jesus Christ. 
and use your word in our lives to accomplish that end of renewing our minds and conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ as you complete the work that you began in us. For this grace, we give you thanks in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, at the end of last week's message, I I shared with you that Lynn and I have been married uh, for 35 years. And um, I also shared with you that I remember the first words that we shared between one another. Uh, The first words I uh, communicated to Lynn were, I don't know who you are. That was 43 years ago. I said to Lynn, I don't know who you are. And her words back to me were, I'm Lynn Howard. You'll know me by next week. I was 12 years old, and she was 11. And before those words were shared between us, we had noticed one another. I don't remember the first time I saw any of you. (laughs) But I remember the first time I saw Lynn. And I remember it like it was yesterday. Again, I'm 12, she's 11 years old. I, I remember seeing Lynn for the first time Golden blonde hair, beautiful dark brown eyes, white Calvin Klein jeans, <laughs> full of life. I could go on like the author of the Song of Solomon does, but I remember seeing her for the first time. Uh, Lynn went to a private school. I went to a local public school, and uh, so we, we saw one another at church, which means we saw one another just a few hours a week, and we liked one another as an adolescent kids. Uh, But we were not committed to one another, certainly. And as young adolescents, there were times when she had other boyfriends and I had other girlfriends. But providentially, Lynn's parents transferred her from the public or private school into the public school during her high school years. And so she came to the school where I attended. And also providentially, the school, they, uh, they assigned lockers alphabetically per grade. And she was a grade behind me. I was in 11th grade. She was in 10th grade. Her last name was Howard. My last name was Hazen. Right across the hall from one another. I was the 10th grade lockers. I was in the 11th grade lockers. She was Howard. I was Hazen. I began seeing her every day. And through those years in high school, we noticed one another again. And, and Lynn took the initiative. We dated for a few years in high school and then dated for a couple years through college, and then the day came when I asked the question, would you marry me? That's a huge question. That is a big decision. That's a huge commitment. Would you join your life to me? Would you be mine? Could we do life together as husband and wife? And she said yes. We had no idea what we were getting into. Marriage is so big that everyone who enters into it is changed by it. You cannot enter marriage and remain the way you are. Uh, Marriage is a 100% loss for a 100% gain. You cease to be an individual so that you might become a couple. You give up the rights to yourself so that you might pursue something new, something you've never had before. Marriage is not a 50-50 arrangement. It is a 100% whole person commitment to the other. And so there was a day when I asked Lynn, would you marry me? And she said, yes. We were young. I married a teenager. I was 20. She was 19. Those relationships never make it. Just joking. 
We're married young, and by God's grace, and in that context, we've enjoyed 35 years of marriage. We've enjoyed the safety and the security of full person and full personality exposure. And the pleasures of physical intimacy and the joys and challenges of married life and family life and the privilege of sharing sorrows and doubling joys. And we have learned and we are still learning the necessity of deep commitment for our relationship to flourish. Is commitment meaningful? Is covenant commitment necessary and meaningful? Uh, Does the covenant of marriage make any difference? It's a big question. Think of it this way. If mankind invented marriage, uh, if somewhere along our biological evolutionary process we reached this idea that in order for the flourishing of humanity there ought to be a coupling of men and women for the offspring of children and marriage is therefore necessary, if, if mankind invented marriage, then it can determine its necessity and its parameters. Marriage can be set aside. If if mankind invented marriage, marriage can be set aside or it can be morphed into whatever we want to make it. If mankind invented marriage, then the working manual, the guidelines, can be changed per our wishes every generation. And quite frankly, that's what we've seen happen over the last couple of decades. It's just the outworking of a humanistic view on marriage. But if God created marriage... And he gave it to mankind as a gracious, loving gift for the flourishing of humanity, then it would be unwise for us to dissolve of it or alter its parameters, its guidelines, its goodness, and its purposes. You see, here before we even press into the text, your view on love and romance and sex is determined either by a humanistic worldview or a theistic worldview. Your view of God impacts your perspective on all of humanity and how it works and on its relationships. So is the covenant commitment of marriage, is it meaningful? Is it practical? Does it really make a difference? Does it really matter? In this love song that we've been reading together, we have discovered that in our reading this past week that everything isn't wonderful in love and romance. When two people come together in a covenant commitment of marriage, there's conflict. When God makes two people one, we we learned in science when we were young kids that two objects cannot occupy the same space, right? If you have two objects occupying the same space, there's conflict. Well, when God is working out the miracle of two people becoming one, there is conflict. It's a miracle that God is producing, and it's a miracle that we are working out. And so in the context of marriage, there are conflicts, and disagreements, and miscommunications, and frustrations, and distance, and needed resolution. And in the working out of that, it takes grace, and faith, and forgiveness, and resolves, and repentance, and character development. We're going to discover, if we not already know, commitment, particularly the covenant commitment of marriage, it matters. It's practical. It's powerful. Well, I've had you turn to Song of Solomon chapter 5. Last week, we read to Song of Solomon, all the way, chapter 5, verse 1. So we're going to pick up in verse 2, and we're going to read down through chapter 6, verse 1. I'd encourage you to follow along as I read and, and listen to what's happening between this couple that have been celebrating their love and intimacy and romance all along. Uh, here, we're going to run into their first uh, hiccup, if you will, their first trouble in paradise. I slept, verse 2, I slept. But my heart was awake. So this is dream sequence number two. We had dream one in chapter three. I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, 
my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with drops of the night. I had put off my garments. How could I put them on? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. Too late. Missed out. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat and bruised me. They took away my veil, these watchmen of the walls. So those who should be safe were not safe. They did harm. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him, I am sick with love. What is your beloved more than any other beloved, O most beautiful among women? What is your beloved more than any other beloved that you adjure us to look for him with you? My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like the beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. This guy's a real statue. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved. This is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Where is your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? So chapter 5 ends and chapter 6 begins, and there's still separation. There's still unresolved conflict. What's happened here in the song? What's happened here? Well, if you go back to chapter 5, the man has come to his women, and he's showing an interest in physical intimacy, in having sex. He comes with terms of endearment. He says, oh, my, my dove, my love, my perfect one. He comes with playful intent, and he's ready to enjoy what they've enjoyed before, which she has initiated before, even in the song, which she has desired before. So here's this man, he comes to his woman with desires for the enjoyment of sex, and she's initially hesitant and a bit resistant and not initially interested. I don't want to go there. He makes his move. He finds she's not initially interested. He reads her hesitancy, but she begins to have a change of mind and a change of heart and a change of desire, and she begins to open up to him, and it's too late. The moment is lost. The mood has changed. He's gone. Oh no, trouble in paradise. And this has happened to every married couple everywhere. Introduced in this song about love and romance is the reality of miscommunication, frustration, separation, searching, desire, and disappointment. She changes her mind. He changes direction. They're apart from one another. There's danger introduced. This is a bummer. And this is not what we've been reading all along in this song where their love and romance and physical intimacy has been celebrated and enjoyed. Now we run into it and there's been a glitch, a hiccup. How's the conflict resolved? Chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6, here's this conflict that's introduced in the song. How's it resolved? 
Well, let's pick up where we left off. Chapter 6, verse 1. Where is your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where is your beloved turned, that we may seek him with you? My beloved has gone down to his garden. Where is his garden? It's not in the backyard. He's not picking cucumbers and hoeing potatoes. Where is his garden? Come on, folks. We know all along where his garden is. It's been communicated in the song repeatedly. She is his garden. He's gone down to his garden. They're back in bed. She's gone down, he's gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. So how is the conflict resolved? Ah, such a quiet audience. <laughs> Apparently sex solves all the problems. Oh, you're just like the first service. No amens there at all. They're back in bed. Enjoying what they've enjoyed before as a husband and a wife. And this is powerful. This is important. So how's the conflict resolved? Well, looks like sex solved the problem. Oh, hey, there. One. One out of two services. And sure enough, it's by a man. We know as a married couple that sex doesn't solve all the problems. In love and romance and in marriage. In marriage, there will be more frustrations than just sexual frustration. In the context of marriage, there are challenges and disagreement in decision-making, in child-rearing, in financial expenditures, life expectations, time budgets, calendar commitments, in-laws, outlaws, laundry, video games, vacations, you name it, the list goes on. The couple who are deeply in love, the couple who are committed to one another in marriage as this song is, they don't live a frustration-free life. As I already said, as two people become one in marriage, there are numerous challenges and difficult decisions and disagreements that need to be worked out together. And when they're worked out together, there are failures and there's forgiveness. And there is repentance and restoration. And there is difficult communication and hard-won joys. And we learn in the covenant commitment of marriage that commitment is necessary, meaningful, practical, and intensely important. Sex doesn't solve all the problems, but sex isn't irrelevant either. It's probably far more important than you and I think it to be. Physical intimacy is a powerful, God-given pleasure for promoting unity and harmony in marriage between a husband and wife that God is making one by his design. In the song, the couple separated by this confusion and frustration, they come back together to enjoy what they enjoyed before, and this is actually powerful in welding them together and promoting their unity and harmony and togetherness. On the flip side of that equation, prolonged seasons of sexual abstinence in a marriage due to unresolved conflict is a recipe for disaster. And I don't just get that from this song. I get it from the pages of the New Testament. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, and as he gives education and instruction to the married couples in the church, listen to what he says. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. 
For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. That's countercultural. There's a 100% loss in marriage for a 100% gain. The woman gives up the rights to her body and the man gives up the rights to his body so that they might belong to one another. You give up something that was to become something completely new and different. You think marrying a person of commitment really matters? You're gonna give yourself to that person. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another. What's he talking about? He's talking about the same thing that's being talked about in Song of Solomon. Don't deprive one another sexually. Why? Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer. So if you're going to abstain from sex and marriage, it ought to be by agreement for a short period of time so that you might pray together. But don't go long. Why? But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Wow. And you didn't think this stuff was in the Bible. Sounds like sex is spiritual. Sounds like sex is theological. We shouldn't be surprised that there's a whole book written about it in our Bible, the book that we've been studying, the book that has long been overlooked or over-allegorized to our detriment. This book is a wisdom piece of literature. It's to teach us wisdom, to give us instruction. Physical intimacy. Designed by God at the beginning. God's the one who made males and females. God's the one who made males with testosterone and females with estrogen. God is the one who designed this. And physical intimacy is of his design. It is to be enjoyed by the husband and wife in a covenant commitment of marriage, and it is powerful as it relates to their oneness. God has given sex to weld people together as husband and wife. So here's the big point for this morning's message. Sex doesn't solve all the problems, but it's not irrelevant either. A promised commitment, a covenant commitment to a person of character whom you were attracted to, which resulted in a covenant commitment between you, that covenant commitment is a bedrock foundation for enduring the storms that come into life of those who have been joined together. And physical intimacy is a powerful unity producer to be experienced by those who are in the security of that union. It's huge. For those of us who are married we ought to be learning and benefiting from this wisdom. And we should be regularly praying, God, strengthen me to keep my promises and grow me in the humble character of Jesus Christ as I learn to serve my spouse as Jesus has served me. We ought to be praying that and we ought to be practically working that out in our relationships. We need the reminder from the scripture. We also need the exercise. We need the practice. Uh, For those who are not married, you ought to be praying the same. God, strengthen me to keep my promises and grow me in the humble character of Jesus as I learn to serve others in love. And for those who are not married, they should also be learning the wisdom from this book that God has a design for human relationships and God has a design for the covenant commitment of marriage and God has a design, a good design for sex in the context of that union. 
Physical intimacy is designed to be experienced by those within that covenant commitment. It is for pleasure, it is for protection, it is for procreation, and it's designed to weld people together in a one flesh union. It is glue to the commitment. So, if you're single, and you think you can have sex with every boyfriend and girlfriend you encounter, because that's what you see in the movies, and that's what you hear in the music, if you think you can have sex with every boyfriend and girlfriend you bring home, then you're imitating the worldview of the God-denying, and you're going contrary to God's plan. You don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. In doing that, you are fragmenting your own life. Because God has designed physical intimacy to weld people together in a relationship where they're committed to one another. And they go through all the storms of life together. If, you, if you're engaging in that activity, you know, the hookup culture is the culture we live in. It's the culture that's portrayed in the movies, sung about in our music. The hookup culture is everywhere. If you're going down that path, you're not only fragmenting your life, but you're devaluing every other person devaluing the people that you're with as you take from them what does not belong to you and as you use them for your own pleasures and purposes. You're misapplying the glue, the adhesion that God has designed for a husband and wife. You don't, you don't want to go that way. There's a reason why the bride in this song, who is enjoying this physical relationship with her husband, keeps saying to her unmarried companions, wait for this. Don't awaken this. Don't go here too soon. She's not repressing chemistry. No, she's promoting wholeness and goodness and the glory of what God has created for human flourishing, for human relationships. It's a love that's worth having. It's a love that's worth waiting for. So here we are. We've talked about chemistry. Chemistry is powerful. Chemistry is effectual. It makes us notice the other and want to spend time with them and to be with them. Chemistry is important. Chemistry wants us to be with the other person. Being with the other person is so that we might learn their character. Is this, is this a person of value? Is this someone that I would spend my life with or just a good friend? What, what, what's happening here? So chemistry is important. It, it desires you to be together. You're together so that you might learn one another's character. Ultimately, this relationship is leading toward either not being together or a covenant commitment a covenant commitment of marriage where there's a consummation of that desire and celebration. And that's where we're going next week. We look at the last two chapters, chapter seven and eight, and we'll pick up on our last two themes, consummation and celebration. A love like this, a love that is ideal and written about in this song is worth celebrating. People around it go like, oh, that's, that's the way to go. That's the right plan. So let's, uh, let's go there next week. You know, I didn't finish reading chapter 6. And so let's, uh, the, the conflict has been resolved. Let's look at chapter 6, verse 4, and we'll close our sermon by looking at this celebration of their unity restored and the harmony between them. Chapter 6, verse 4. You are beautiful as Tirzah, my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn your eyes, you turn your, away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Here we go with all these interesting descriptions of affection and praise for one another that meant something then. It's strange for us today. But notice there's a full body acknowledgement. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins. Not one of them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like the halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. 
There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. Women without number are women without identities. That's why this song is not about Solomon and his thousand. He's a contrast to what this song is about. This is about a song about a shepherd and his Shulamite bride. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines, virgins without number, virgins without number are virgins without identities, but my dove, my perfect one, is the only one. The only one of her mother, pure to who her bore her. The young women saw her, and they called her blessed. The queens and concubines also, and they praised her. They acknowledged her as a girl of praiseworthiness, of character. Who is this that looks down for like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? I went down to the nut orchard back in the garden, looked at his blossoms, looked at the blossoms of the valley to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsmen, a prince. Return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon you. Why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies? Well, next week we'll pick up in chapter 7 and 8, pick up on the last two themes of this little book, Consummation and Celebration. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, once again, we are grateful for the instruction that your word gives us. Certainly, you have revealed yourself in your word, but you have also revealed to us your good designs for our pleasure, for our joy, and you've given us instruction for our good, and in keeping them, there is life and security and safety and pleasures forevermore. So, Father, we're grateful for this study that we've been going through. Again, I I pray as I encourage these people to pray, God, strengthen me to keep my promises and continue to grow me in the humble character of Jesus Christ. And do that for us corporately as we learn together and as we grow in faith and grace and in knowledge and in obedience. So for this grace, we ask in the powerful and very precious name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.